It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Yannick Baudouin. And he's the Director of Innovation and for Ontario with the David Suzuki Foundation. And he is here to talk to us about something new that they have going on, the Wellbeing Economics Alliance for Canada and Sovereign Indigenous Nations. It's a network of works to accelerate the translation of well-being economics for people and the planet and create a, a systemic a transformation of economy of economics thinking and systems and i can tell you a little bit more about uh, dr yannick he uh, as i said is the director of innovation and for ontario with the david suzuki foundation he brings a new economics for translation lens to the organization to enable the transformation of canada towards social and ecological sustainability and until recently uh, he was the chief scientist of grid Andreal, and it is a center for collaborating with the United Nations located in Norway. And uh, Norway being a country that, um, one of the countries he has visited, I understand he is quite an avid traveler. It's something he likes to do, as well as eating peanut butter, but staying away from Brussels sprouts. Is that right? <laughs> Wow, somebody's been spilling the beans about me on that one. Okay, that's good, yes. And that's just a little aside as I was talking about that. It just popped into my head. So, But anyway, it's a pleasure to have you here on the show and talking about this. You know, um, as I was reading over this Wellbeing Economics Alliance, it makes, uh, of course, perfect sense that uh, Indigenous uh, participation is involved because it, the thinking that Indigenous people had around the planet and around living and having a sense of well-being. Absolutely. And I think you're already starting it on the right foot in the sense that in a way it's going forward by also going back. So mm. it's kind of looping into, I mean, when we look at, you know, economic systems and models and all this technical mumbo jumbo, what we're really thinking about is, is realizing that, that Canada's unsustainability mm. is very young. Mm. For, you know, since time immemorial, the relationship, even the economic relationship uh, between peoples on Turtle Island and, um, you know, the, the, the nature that, that we're a part of was a, a very balanced symbiotic relationship. It wasn't considered separate, right? I'm, I'm basically uh, reflecting a lot of the teachings that have been, that are, that have been there forever. And so it's trying to show... Um, you know, segments of society that think, oh my God, it's so hard to change. So we can't just, the system is mm. the system. It is what it is. It's like, actually, that's only been around for a little tiny amount of time uh, on Turtle Island. And so we got a lot to learn from the 10,000s and, you know, uh, years from before that. So I think it's really kind of, kind of, kind of getting that inspiration point to realize a new economy isn't necessarily about something fundamentally new, Right. It is going back into the past, taking this, you know, working with the stories that have been around and sort of saying there are different paths and different ways and different relationships we can have in our economy. This is sort of an aside to this, but I'm just wondering, why do you think that that wasn't embraced when settlers first came to North America and saw indigenous people living in what was, you know, by some described as the Garden of Eden over here. Yeah, and when you look, I mean, uh, when you look at the worldview, 
um, the settler worldview, the colonial world worldview, even before colonialism was started mm-hmm. way back in, in the, the old Europe and, and going back that that worldview has key assumptions in it, right? That nature is something for men to have mm. uh, extraction is normal extract from the people extract from nature uh, then eventually you get into movements of colonialism where it's actually perfectly okay to go to someone else's uh, space <laughs> and take that space that's right. normal that yeah. is all normal yeah. yep. and so by the time a thousand years of history kind of come through and you get to this point of uh, of settlement um, those are societal of course, this is how we do it. Uh, and, and, and commoditization, turning it into a, a piece of paper or piece of money, all of that was normal and still is kind of that, you know, mm-hmm. in the deep psychology, the yeah. deep belief system that we have. And so you can't really point and say it started there, yeah. right? It's this kind of progression sure. of a worldview yeah. that gets amplified over time. Right. And here we are today. And like you said, it's been relatively short time frame do you sense that that will be the difficulty in trying to get people to think differently around it well because so often we we look at the problems and the challenges we face in society today and we think well if we just get enough science and data and numbers Mm -hmm. people will change but the essence of change is not is is not a machine it's not mechanistic it's not a a give the numbers and thou shalt change another (laughs) way it's deeply emotional intuitive Mm. qualitative and those are things that a lot in, in Western teachings were, were taught not to give a lot of credence to that in our education, right? Be objective. Mm. The world can be reduced to tiny little parts and, you know, reductionism. So in some cases that can work for some challenges, but when you're trying to shift kind of a, a pathway in the deep stories of a worldview, it's not going to be about data, numbers, and a, a one type of science. It's going to be a lot more than that. It's the humanness. But the challenge is we don't like to get into that space. That's messy. That's complex. Oh, God. We'd rather stick with the very simple equations. Give me A, give me B, we'll obviously have C. How's that worked for us so far? Mm. Mm. It, what jumps to mind, of course, and, and you, you know, I guess part of this that you're working towards ties in with uh, the climate, climate change, and even getting people to change the habits of driving to work. <laughs> Yeah. Is, is proving to be difficult, right? Well, even the little things, I mean, yeah. we're, we're sort of programmed, not, I mean, there's a great saying, I can't remember who said it, but, you know, uh, change is always happening. Who wants, but who wants to change, right? Mm-hmm. And no one, no one puts their hands up. Right. As humans, we're, we're kind of like in a space where, at that, you know, changing ourselves is, is, is kind of against sort of a bit of our DNA, right? Mm-hmm. You, you get into habits, routines, and rhythms, and you're, we're kind of conditioned to stick to that unless really something viscerally like bang on the head happens. And so, but for the most part, we're still in a, in a, in a kind of worldview or, or an approach to knowing things where, well, no, that's not true. If you just use the brain, we all use our brain, we'll eventually figure out that this is not logical. It's like, but, but no, what about the rest of us, mm-hmm. right? What about the, the heart space, you yeah. know, is trying to sense its way to the world. What about that intuition, the, your gut instinct? That is real. That's real stuff. That's mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. But that's all quashed away. And we think, well, we're little programs running around. You can't just change the program. Mm. I think that's, that's a bit where we're trying to go into this well-being economies program space is, yes, we could have chosen to go with, let's take all these other economic models and models and models and theory and theory, uh, which is great. A lot of great stuff out there. Um, or we could choose to start working into the deeper stories. Mm. What are 
What are the stories that are not letting go of us or that we don't want to let go of? Why don't we want to let go of them? What is the fear? What are the assumptions? Because if you can start moving into that space where economics is just an invention, a few brains got together and invented modern economics. Mm. What if a lot more brains got together? What if they got together with their hearts? What if they got together with their guts or, you know, their intuition? What, it can't be worse than what we have today, right? It probably could only be better. There's 180 languages spoken today in, in the, what we're calling the city of Toronto. The last time they tried to redesign the economy, there was half of one voice, right? White men. Mm. And it's not their fault. They're not evil. They weren't bad. <laughs> but they were one tiny little global voice making a decision mm. on, and assumptions on everything around us. That can't work. There's no way. That, that 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 person can somehow empathize with another cu- culture, let alone thousands of other cultures. Mm. Right. So the idea of this well-being uh, idea, which sounds wonderful, and uh, this first-of-kind Indigenous Canadian Economics Alliance that you're you're talking about creating. Um, tell me a little bit about the backstory. Well, you know, I, I was I was busy minding my own business in the UN in Norway, uh, trying to figure out why nothing was working right in the world when it came to mm. international development and progress. And so, eventually, kind of, you know, my own journey, personal journey, was to go back to school and, and in the space of economics, but a very different kind of a, a school of economics in the UK, looking at holism and relationship based economics. Mm. And suddenly, get a call, and I said, David, who? Um, and so, so that, that kind of led me back to Canada Mm. and the idea was the foundation wanted to start looking at creating a strategic area, a space, a more participatory, uh, place where you might start to tackle some of the root, deep, deep, deep root causes, uh, in our models, in our ways of thinking that lead to the poverty, the climate outcomes that we have, uh, the nature's loss and biodiversity loss. So yes, we have to fight the system of today. There's no choice. Mm. We're really, in a, you know, we do on all kinds of social and environmental justice and equity issues. At the same time, we also then need to divert some energy. What if we didn't have to fight the system? Because what if the system had been or could be designed not to have those outcomes? And that's where that quality of life, well-being for planet space comes in. If your ultimate design if the purpose of an economy was to deliver this idea of well-being for people and planet, how do you reverse then design all the systems that would come along? So the first thing we did is, well, yeah, sure, you know, uh, D- DSF could decide here's the solution on its own. We should probably get back to a repetition of everything that's not working today. Or we can say, why don't we just get a whole bunch of amazing, remarkable people mm. together? Mm. We don't know what the outcome will be. We don't necessarily know where it's all going, but they're holding a vision together. And we did that in the fall of 2020. Just got about 80 people, all kinds of walks of life, all kinds of sectors. One of the things that we did is we just made sure that they were coming in as themselves, not not as a role in a profession, Mm. in a government, in a company. Bring yourself to the table. And then we started imagining together. And that laid the instruction, the kind of the guidelines for what this alliance could look like what it should be trying to tackle as questions. We didn't come up with any answers, just what are the big questions that we can come up with? And then that's now moving into a phase of, all right, let's gather more people. Let's keep this momentum going. And this is inspired by probably the most transformative moment society-wise 
in 20th century modern times, right after the Second World War, a bunch of dudes got together, a little hotel not too far from here called Bretton Woods, took them three weeks to redesign the entire world order. Mm. There were only 730 of them. Um, I'm pretty sure we could do better again, right? <laughs> so with that inspiration point is saying it doesn't actually take that much. Now, their intent was different mm. and the outcomes were all unpredictable. This is the well, we're suffering from something that wasn't basically seen and predicted that perpetuated, again, a very Western view of the world. But all the point was, doesn't take much time. Three weeks, no internet. They didn't mm. have that back then. Right. No smartphones, just a bunch of abacuses. And they came up with all the institutions that we have today. Mm. So I think if we're, if we're going, replicating that amazing success right. but within an entirely different preconditions, right? Plurality of voices, different stories, all the stories we can muster all together in, in one place, the creativity that people have based on their experiences. Man, the world's our oyster. Mm. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM, and my guest here on the show is Dr. Yannick Baudouin, and he's the Director of Innovation and for Ontario with the David Suzuki Foundation. And uh, we're talking to him about this uh, first-of-its-kind Indigenous-Canadian Economic Alliance that calls for well-being, calls for a well-being revolution, and actually wants to think about how we can put well-being ahead of the GDP or the gross uh, gross profit. And it, it certainly does sound like, like you say, you know, and some of the information I've been reading, there is the inequity. There are some people that are doing well that are and a lot of people that are not doing so well. And it seems like there is a greater and greater divide that is happening between the rich and the poor, as we know. So the idea of, of, moving this into an idea of well-being so that everybody gets a chance to have a decent life and have and and feel good about their lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's taking back some of the concept, right? The word profit mm. comes from an old French word meaning for progress. Mm. Obviously, that's not how we use it anymore, right? We're, we're thinking profit as money. So how do you start to get back into these assumptions, these old underlying assumptions, bust the, myth, bust the myths a bit, you know, mm. busters on TV, do some of that to shake a bit the, the, the ground so you can start saying, okay, where, where are the sprouts of innovation? I mean, innovation is a, is a buzzword all the time, right? Innovate mm -hmm. this, innovate that, mm -hmm. innovate that, except never innovate the economic model. We're never told to do that. We're actually told the opposite. Stay away from the economic religion. Only the bishops and the cardinals are allowed to, to get into that space. That is complete fallacy, right? Mm -hmm. Why is it that we can't even have a basic understanding of some of these core systems that rule our lives? Right. When I did a lot of town halls before, um, before in the times before when we were allowed to have time ha town halls in person, I would just test out. I was curious to know where, where different people were at with understanding the, you know, the basics of the system. So you mentioned mm -hmm. GDP. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing to see, okay, I, I tried to get people to just explain in vernacular what was GDP. And I would get blank stares out of a room of 400 people. Mm -hmm. I mean, they could say gross domestic product, but they didn't know what it meant. Right. But they, one person would stand up and say, goes up it's good yeah <laughs> what? what what like how, how do you know is it good for you is it good right, for, right. for the well, billionaires well, right? of course and, yeah. and so we've created a, a set of illusions in a way or we're we're, we're we kind of got co-opted along the way too and i it's a, it's a kind of uh, it's a feedback loop in a way right we're, mm. we're not we're, we're complicit we want it to be different but we're still sucked into the system and, and it's kind of a self-fulfilling kind of organism going on here mm. and so so if you're if you're starting to say that the only reason the canadian economy exists today 
is to boost GDP because somehow magically that'll turn into quality of life and well-being. Mm. Why? And then you realize that's just a human invention. Somebody mm-hmm. came up with that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, GDP was invented for the war mm. as a war tool. Right. Most people don't know that it was invented in the late 30s as, uh, as the Second World War was coming. And it was a way for um, the American president to understand where to, how quickly they could build tanks and, and ammunition. Mm. And even the guy who invented GDP, there was two people, said, please, Mr. President, never use this after the war because it's only good for production and, and consumption measures. And what did what did we do? We started to use it. So we're using a war tool in supposedly a time of peace. Maybe we're at war with nature. I don't know. It's a bit of a strange thing. Maybe in the Western worldview we are. Um, but I think now is the time to say, okay, great. It did its job. Yeah. Great number. Fantastic. But has nothing to do with whether or not a society is doing well, thriving, or anything else. So now we're into a space where we can look at complexity. We can even work with it. We have digital technologies that we could deploy to say, how do I know through this complexity that we're going the right way? We have that now in the 21st century, which we didn't back then. So how do we learn from the most powerful number in the human universe, GDP, and, and move away from it? I had a six-year-old a few weeks ago, a sixth grader at this school a few weeks ago say, I don't understand why anybody would work with something gross. And what an amazing <laughs> thing to say. We work with something gross. We want, our, we, want, we want our countries to grow something gross. That is horrible. <laughs> Only a kid, right? Only a kid would say that. Was fabulous. <laughs> what a great comment. Yeah, for sure. Um, so because this is, as you point out, it's um, it's part of this well-being economy alliance that is international and global. How is the indigenous knowledge and indigenous uh, practitioners being, are, are they being utilized in this? And how are they involved on both national and international? If you're going like even in Norway, I know the Sami people are the indigenous people uh, in, in that country. So how, how is that being utilized? I would say that the, the, the clearest example I have popping in my head right now is the Ateora uh, hub. So the New Zealand uh, hub where uh, Maori involvement has mm. been there since the beginning to sort of say again, you know, how, how is it that we can redesign things? So not, it's not necessarily about, oh, we'll, we'll look at indigenous knowledge. No. So, you know, being facilitated in mm. certain ways, mm. different ways uh, okay. helps the design process. And that's been something that they've been uh, kind of heavily involved in. Uh, and then the, not, the global kind of scale is a, a place to share experiences okay. uh, and sort of share knowledge. Um, you know, f- for our work, we're going to be specifically kind of focusing energies here on Turtle Island, uh, you know, also in, in Inuit Tapariat and, mm. and just kind of making sure, you know, and Canada as all coming together. And, and how do we move from just acknowledging that there is such a thing as Indigenous traditional knowledge and actually then saying facilitation, come in and, and how do we lead together? How do we find ways of creating the spaces uh, in, in different ways than you would we would normally do um, using maybe uh, purely uh, uh, Western approaches to to social interaction. So I think it's trying to in the basic architecture, the idea from the get go with our knowledge circle kind of coming together, uh, having representation from different cultures and different First Nations, uh, for example, helping to guide and influence. Well, if, if you were going to tackle that problem, there's that way to do it. Or, mm. huh, maybe. Mm maybe our storytelling way, maybe some work around ceremony way, right? So those are the things that were from the ground 
level, this, the soil itself behind the we all can mm. is, is not, we're, we're hoping, we're working not to make it the typical soil of, hey, let's make a strategy and a plan and project manage uh, everything about this. <laughs> Moving away from that, really recognizing time is needed. Gift yourself time, mm. right? Mm. Um, I mean, my go-to economics book these days is Braiding Sweetgrass. Mm. That is an entire story about value and belief and culture. And that's economics to an economist. It's like, yeah. So, you know, doing that kind of work and, and connecting with, with uh, um, knowledge keepers like that to sort of say, hey, you lead this. Like, w- what's a great way to tackle these issues in a mm. completely different social space? Mm. Right. Uh, opening up your thinking. And thinking about things in different ways. Now, if people are interested in finding out more and want to get involved, how can they get involved? So the best at this point is on the, the new portal that we just launched. Uh, there is a place to kind of just just sign up, okay. start to get the information as we're still in the startup phase. We're rolling out newsletters at some point. Um, we're working on a, a very clear what is this kind of document, right? So the David Suzuki Foundation, uh, David did a lot of work on something called the Declaration of Interdependence, which mm. gave a lot of people out in the community an idea of what it meant to kind of follow the ethos of, of, of the foundation. We'll do something similar with the We All Can. What's the pledge? Like what people don't have to commit to a whole lot of things, right? Just reading and being part can be a fantastic, uh, you know, connection point. And others might want to say, I want help organizing something in my community. Great. Those are the kinds of things we'll roll out over the next little while. Um, we're also running some, some, some uh, a kind of small group uh, thinking spaces just to sort of get get things started, to plant some seeds here and there. I think the easiest for, for everybody right now is just go to that site sign up, you'll start to get our information and that'll have connection points to, 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 uh, to, to move on the uh, engagement spectrum, if you want to say, if you want to call it that. And can you give us that site for people to go to? Yeah, so it's www.weallcanada.org. Okay. We All Can was like $15,000 or something. <laughs> Somebody was making a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, uh, like you said, so if people want to find out more, they can go to the weallcanada.org site. Exactly. Um, is there any more information if they go to the David Suzuki Foundation site so that they, they have a link there to go to or anything? Or Yes. Yeah, so, so what we've done is because we don't, we're, we're trying to make it this as decentralized and okay. distributed and making an alliance. So most of the relevant information yep. on the work yep. is on the weallcanada.org site. Okay. Uh, there's some mentioned on the DSF side of our broader kind okay. of programmatic spaces uh, on well-being economies, mm-hmm. but really the bulk of the materials and the, the content is, is going to be hosted on the weallcanada.org site. Fabulous. Is there anything else we haven't talked about in terms of what you're trying to get going here and, and promote that you, we haven't talked about that you want to mention? Uh, well, we already mentioned the Brussels sports are the worst things in the universe, so we're good there. We've covered that. No, I think, I mean, to be honest, I, I'm really thankful just to, to be here to kind of launch that invitation to folks. We are looking to connect. We might not be able to to respond to everything all at once, but mm-hmm. the whole point is to really create imagination spaces. And we're, we're, we're inviting that kind of long view thinking, right, of redoing, redrawing some of these basic uh, principles of, of worldviews and how we might, again, go forward by learning from what was. Uh, and so, you know, it is an, an invitation to kind of really connect with us and, and, and we'll, we'll start to, to get the ball rolling on everything. 
Sounds great. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and share this and certainly allow me to share information about your your dislike of Brussels sprouts. And <laughs> that would be great. I'm going to get some some hate mail and some love mail. I'm sure it's going to be 50-50. I happen to like them myself, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's it. This interview is over. <laughs> it is actually over so thank you <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to join us and and I look forward to having you back on because I would really like to continue this conversation if there's updates uh, it would be great to to help you uh, you know distribute that information get it out there to people so that they can start you know thinking differently uh, like you said it's it's just that idea about getting people to think differently about uh, how we can think from a more, a more uh, you know a, a well-being perspective Absolutely. An economy should serve us, not the reverse. Ah, nicely said. All right, Dr. Yannick Baudouin, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I look forward to uh, doing so again. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. You take care. All right. Dr. Yannick Baudouin, he is the Director of Innovation for Ontario with the David Suzuki Foundation. If you want to find out more about the We All Can, then you can go to the website and that is at weallcanada.org. And I'm David Moses, your host. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more coming up right after these short messages. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Professor David Tyndall. He is a professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia, which is where we find him. So it's a pleasure to have him here. He's on the show to talk about an article he authored in the conversation. It is entitled Anti-Vax Protest or Insurrection, Making Sense of the Freedom Convoy Protest. Now, Professor Tyndall studies contention over environmental issues, including topics such as forestry, wilderness preservation, fisheries, and climate change. And a major focus of his is research has been uh, in environmental movements in British Columbia and Canada, and in this context, the interrelationships between social networks, movement, identification, and participation. His research has focused on various aspects of environmentalism, including values, attitudes and opinions, activism and conservation behavior, media coverage of environmental issues, as well as gender issues and social networks and environmentalism. Wow. Welcome to the show, first of all. Thank you. Uh, you know, given the nature of what you're looking at, what you study, uh, and certainly being a professor, I'm sure that given the nature of things and how it's rolling out these days and all that has happened, I'm guessing you guys have a lot to talk about in your classes. <laughs> yes, there's definitely a lot to talk about, and uh, and sometimes uh, uh, you want to avoid reading the the paper first thing in the morning because uh, you want to rest a little bit before you go to work. Just prior to COVID, we had the climate marches, youth led, that were huge uh, events that were going on. You make note of that in this article, talking about the size in comparison to the numbers and the size of the protests that we saw, for instance, that, that was in downtown Ottawa. Now, the numbers weren't there, but the size of the, of the vehicles involved certainly made this a much larger and noticeable uh, protest in that regard. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the truckers protest, I mean, it certainly visually, it did have this, um, 
uh, gave this impression of being very large, especially when you saw these uh, uh, aerial uh, um, mm-hmm. shots of, of, you know, big lines of, of these, uh, the, these convoys of, of trucks and stuff. Um, you know, in the, in the article, I kind of note that on the one hand, while, while people had this impression that it was very big, that the, the actual number of, of people on the ground um, was not nearly as large as, as some of the uh, climate marches, for example, such as in Montreal, where there was about 500,000 people uh, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you know, some people might say this is a little bit of an apples and oranges kind of thing, uh, which, which would be a fair criticism. So, so first of all, I would say that with the, uh, I'm going to, as shorthand, I'm going to call it the truckers protest for the, for the truckers protest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people, uh, a number of people did show up and, and <laughs> hang out in very cold temperatures for, for a few weeks. And, and that shows a high level mm-hmm. of, uh, commitment. So, so for some of the climate marches I was talking about, you know, people just had to kind of show up you know, for a couple of hours on an afternoon and stuff like that. So, so that's one, one thing that's, uh, that's, that's quite different. And that's actually something that, uh, that uh, scholars of social movements pay some attention to is the kind of amount of cost that's involved in the activities that, that people participate in and, um, you know, the level of commitment that, that people have. All, all of that said, um, you know, I think that there is some evidence to suggest that, the, the, the people who strongly support, you know, what the, the truckers protest was about is, is actually quite a bit smaller than, than people who support uh, action on, on dealing with climate change. You mentioned costs there uh, that scholars point out or, or look at costs. What, what do you mean by that? Well, there's several there's several different types of, of costs, but, you know, one one type of cost is uh, just time commitment. So so, you know, how much how much time can you um, devote to to doing something? Uh, sometimes there's also financial costs as well. And and in this particular case, it's, it's quite interesting because I, I imagine that, you know, especially these people that that drove these big rigs to Ottawa, there, there were financial costs as well that, you know, presumably they weren't working during the time period that they were doing this. They mm-hmm. had to uh, spend some money on fuel. Uh, they had to spend some money on food and, 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 and other sorts of things. And, and so, you know, so in general, in, in social movements, cost is, uh, you know, is a factor that, that influences whether or not uh, individuals can participate in, in certain types of actions. Um, and another element of this is also, is also risk that, uh, that there's certain types of risks that are associated with certain types of activities. And, and, and some people are kind of more or less willing to uh, engage in those types of risk. But j- just to kind of give you an example from, you know, the neck of the woods, so to speak, where I've done some of my research um, back in the, uh, in the early 1990s, there was these protests over trying to protect uh, Clockwood Sound. And they had these road blockades over mm-hmm. on, on Vancouver Island. And uh, you know, 
lots of people went up there and, and participated in, in, in civil disobedience. But, you know, to, to some extent, the, the demographics were a bit skewed for who can participate in those types of things. And uh, the media who, who examined this, you know, kind of stereotype some of the protesters as, as young hippies on, on welfare. And, and there's kind of a grain of truth to mm-hmm. that because the people who were able to show up um, you know, and, you know, sleep on the side of the road and stuff like that had, had certain types of characteristics. If they had a, you know, I, I don't know if somebody was like a heart surgeon working in downtown Vancouver, they probably couldn't take a, a week off to go and sleep on the side of the road and, and, and protest these sorts of things. Um, and, and also, you know, uh, some people are more or less able to, uh, to uh, accept certain types of risks. So for instance, if you're kind of responsible for, for looking after uh, small children, you don't probably want to uh, leave yourself open to be being stuck in jail <laughs> unless you had somebody else to look after mm-hmm. the kids. So, so some of these things mm-hmm. play a factor in, in who's willing to get involved in things. Right. Truckers are, are mobile. First of all, the, the roads are their turf. Uh, they have strong communication because of their CB radios. They're always talking to each other. So mobilizing and getting t- together um, is, is something they do. And like you said, this isn't the first time we've seen these kind of things with truckers in the past. So um, that alone is, is something that they already had going in their favor uh, in being able to mobilize quickly to get themselves organized for something like this. Yeah. So you, so you bring up some, some good points. I mean, um, while this was not entirely new, um, you know, to some extent, this was uh, a very interesting uh, innovation, as I mentioned in the article, social movement scholars refer to this as kind of a tactical innovation. So that's so, so the mm-hmm. idea of putting mm-hmm. these big trucks right in the middle of a city, you know, kind of, kind of mm-hmm. really gums things up, but, you know, yeah. in, in addition to that, um, they are, as I understand it, I'm not a I'm not a trucker or an expert on 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 uh, you know on hauling hauling things and so on. But as I understand it, there's a certain amount of uh, self containment to these things that these people are on on the road yeah. for for many hours, and they often sleep in the rigs, yep. and they have a setups mm-hmm. for for food and and all kinds of things. Right. Um, and and uh, you know, and then in addition, as you as you know, they also have this uh, communication technology, which I didn't actually mention uh, in the article, but that's a that's a very good point as well. So, so there's a certain amount of um, I don't know if I want to say the word genius, but you know, cleverness to to uh, to using this this particular tactic, and and there's a a lot of built-in resources, which is another thing that uh, that social movement scholars mm-hmm. are interested in. Yeah. So going back to something you mentioned in your article, messaging versus disruption. Um, again, I think it was really interesting because we did you get the sense also that we were getting uh, mis, not misled, but we were just uh, focusing on on the, the protest rather than the message that they originally wanted, which was to just go back to work without having to get vaccinated. Yeah. So th- I think there's a, a variety of things to, to talk about there. And that's that's uh, that's very interesting. I mean, first of all, I, I've been interested just in the question of um, when media covers these things, what the extent to which they focus on the protest itself versus the message. And I have a paper I've been working on on and off that, that tries to kind of try to get at that thing. So, so when, you know, it is the case when uh, social movement actors disrupt, they do get 
more media coverage, but but very often the media coverage mm. is focused on the disruption and, and not necessarily mm. on the message that they're trying to get out. So that's right. that's kind of one aspect of this. But another aspect, which I didn't uh, have enough space to get into in the article, is that in, <laughs> in this case and in lots of other cases, there's lots of different people and groups that have different motivations that have different understandings of the situation um and that that are you know maybe trying to do different things so on the on the message uh part of this you know there there undoubtedly was some people who you know were mostly concerned about covid uh measures and the fact that they think that they've been you know un- unfairly inconvenienced or uh mm-hmm. you know they've had their rights limited or or something like that but then there's all these other people that <laughs> that have other other grievances or or other concerns and and th- there does seem to have been you know quite a substantial contingent of people who you know their their core thing really was that they were opposed to the Trudeau liberal government. And and this was an opportunity Mm. to protest against the the Trudeau liberal government. But I I think, um, you know, and I I guess we kind of need more research to kind of get at the bottom of this. But I, I think that a core part of this whole business is is really what I would call a libertarian ideology that has uh, diffused from the United States that was part of the the whole Tea Party movement in the states and has kind of been involved in in other sorts of things as well, and and that's really you know when people are talking about freedom, they're they're really um, talking about this this libertarian ideology where they they don't want to have rules like you know you have to be vaccinated or wear a mask uh, but it's also associated with other things too they don't really want to pay much in the way of taxes and they, they don't want to be told what to do on, on a number of, of other issues and, and to a certain extent um, COVID is just an arbitrary topic uh, uh, and, and it provided an opportunity for these people to go and, and protest, but they would be, you know, e- equally willing to show up for, for other sorts of things. And in fact, you know, a few years ago, there was a convoy of truckers that went to Ottawa to, to protest about, uh, things like carbon taxes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. In- interesting point. And, and it does lead into, I guess, I guess that's it. That's something of a discussion that's going to be happening around this, isn't it? As we look to the future, there's going to be a lot of discussion around what 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 were the actual motivations going on, and how many things were in, at play during this whole protest with the truckers in Ottawa. That that's right, and and you know, again, um, I mean, one of the places I th- I think that that's going to be discussed is actually in the uh, the leadership for the Conservative Party, because you know, one of the fallouts of mm. this. Uh, was that that Aaron O'Toole lost his job? It wasn't just about this, but I, I think this yes. also provided a, <laughs> an opportunity for for members of the uh, for MPs to to turf him out of out of that position. But but I think you know when I kind of talk about this here, uh, I, I think what what I mean is you know there's kind of one view that's kind of the libertarian view that that 
you know, makes freedom, uh, uh, you know, kind of almost absolute that, that no one should be able to, uh, to do anything that impinges on, on people's freedom. And there's another view, which is mm. consistent with a different version of conservatism that, you know, the, there's a balance between societal responsibilities and, and, and freedom. And, and I think there's going to be, I think mm. in the conservative party, there's going to be a big debate between those two positions. All right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth. My guest on the show is Professor David Tyndall. He is a professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia. And we are talking to him, or at least using his article that was in the conversation as a launchpad to have our discussion today. It is entitled Anti-Vax Protest or Insurrection, Making Sense of the Freedom Convoy Protest. So it's a pleasure to have Professor Tyndall here. And going back to your article and some of the things you were talking about, you get into and talk Talk about how the the Emergencies Act, what it might mean to the future, and what it might mean to, as you point out, and you've been looking at this over a number of years, at other protests that have happened. There's been, as you say, the Black Lives Matter. There's been Indigenous issues that have come up. Perhaps a party that uh, that may want to use this towards other things might feel more inclined to do so now that it's been used once. Yeah, I think I think that there's, um, you know, potentially, depending on uh, one's point of view, unintended consequences of this. Um, certainly, if I if I go back to thinking about environmental protests and especially protests over the oil and gas um, pipelines and, and we kind of go back to the to the Harper administration um, there, there, you know, there was a lot of um, there's a lot of criticism of of the environmental movement um, and uh, the the prime minister, but also several of the cabinet ministers, you know, talked about environmentalists in, in very derogatory terms. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to know what the what the linkages are, but some environmental groups got um, got audited uh, and investigated. With regard to their to their charitable um, status, mm-hmm. um, certainly in the past, you know, some politicians have had very critical words uh, for environmentalists. So back in the days of the the Clock Sound protests, the premier of British Columbia referred to environmentalists as the the enemies of of British Columbia, and uh, um, conservative politicians in the Harper government had had similar sorts of uh, uh, of words for for environmentalists. The the Kenny government brought in this commission to to investigate, you know, where uh, climate protesters, uh, protesters of the of the oil and gas pipelines were were getting their their money from. So, there, you know, before, before the Emergencies Act was used in this particular instant, there's there's already this this history of, of politicians, you know, really um, pointing their fingers at at people in the environmental movement in, in particular, and, uh, you know, doing certain types of things to, to investigate them or to make their, their lives more miserable. Um, and you know, now that the emergencies act is, has been, been used for the first time since it's, um, since it was created, I, I think in a certain sense, the genie is out of the bottle. So if you had, uh, for instance, a, a more radical, leader uh of the conservative party um 
and I'm just kind of talking about them because this seems kind of the most likely scenario, but hypothetically it could, it could be someone, someone else or some other party. They, they could use this, this act to, to clamp down on, on these, uh, on these groups that they don't like. Uh, so I think that that's a, I think that that's a definite possibility. Hmm. In that regard, and also your article also talks about the way different protests reacted to from from the police, for instance. We we heard about the, them shaking hands, and I, I don't know if you heard about this, but there's they're looking into the fact that some of the police and different forces actually made donations to some of the truckers' uh, support programs and things that were going on. Yeah, so I did, I did, I did hear about that, and yeah, so so I I mean. One thing I would say is I, I think there's a lot of impressionistic evidence about this this um, this issue. I, I'm not sure how much um, kind of solid empirical uh, research has, has been done that's, that's mm. documented these things. But certainly, I mean, first of all, there is this this period of time normally where uh, in Canada, at least that, um, you know, police kind of hold off for for a bit and mm. uh allow protesters to to have their protest and and get their get their message uh across um but then normally um after there's been uh court injunctions um they'll, they'll move in and uh you know disperse the protesters and if the protesters don't disperse then then they'll arrest them um some social movement scholars ha- have said that you know the, the different groups do tend to get treated differently and and so uh, especially in situations where police forces have been predominantly white uh in in certain protests um i think leslie wood mentions this a little bit with regard to the the anti-globalization protests that uh that people of color have been more likely to get cracked down on uh more quickly by uh, by police forces, uh, the, especially in the U.S. Uh, and and we we saw this, I think, a little bit in in the U.S. in the last few years um, over the Black Lives Matters uh, protesters and and so on. And certainly in Canada, it does seem to be the case that uh, in in some instances where there's been um, protests. And, and blockades and stuff by uh, indigenous groups that there's been kind of more of a militarized response and and in fact at least in the case of the the so-called Oka crisis the the, mm-hmm. the military was actually brought in um, and another thing that does seem to be the case is that there does seem to be a little bit of crossover between um, you know, the actual police and, and some of these more right wing protesters. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, apparently some of the people in, involved in the truckers protest had uh, some background in, in the military or in the police. And, and apparently a few key people were, were, were either former police officers or, or former military people that were kind of helping with some of the some of the coordination um, in, in the U.S., the uh, the January 6th in insurrection, mm-hmm. which uh, obviously has been in the news quite a bit for the last year and a bit, um, you know, a number, a number of the people involved in that insurrection were actually ex-military and, and ex-police. Uh, and, and so, uh, so there does seem to be that angle as well with some of these right-wing protests. Right. 
Now, of course, that the now that the Emergencies Act uh, has been revoked, um, that they're going to be uh, taking an inquiry that's going to be looking into this within 60 days, I believe. What do you think that we might see coming out of that? Um, well, that's a that's an interesting question, and I'm I'm not uh, certain what what will happen there. But I, you know, I think there'll be some examination of whether um, you know the act was was purely necessary and and there you know i think that there is this this element of of subjectivity um you know on the one hand some some critics have said well you know they managed to clear the protesters off the 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 ambassador bridge uh in windsor without needing the emergencies act so so why did they need the emergencies act in Mm. in ottawa they they already had all of the laws they they needed to to deal with things um you know the counter uh response there i guess is is that you know some people are are saying that well you know the the ottawa police had two or three weeks to get the job done and they didn't get the job done so uh you know something more more needed to be done besides uh, the the existing laws and and the existing uh, police resources, and right. and so on. So I think that that's that's going to be um, that's going to be focused on quite a bit. Um, you know, I, I think some of the specific things that were were done will be examined, such as uh, especially freezing uh, some of the bank accounts of uh, of the protesters and and mm. possibly some of the the individuals that donated to the um, to the protesters, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of criticism of that. So that uh, probably will be uh, investigated um, more closely as well. And kind of linking back to your kind of earlier question, I mean, I, I do actually think that that's a very interesting thing, too, because I think. Um, with regard to how this might be used against other protesters, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, the flip side of that is, is I think that more conservative politicians are going to be very eager to kind of use those types of measures to um, stop funding to environmental groups and, and possibly to other, other uh, social movement groups as, as well. Um, I think that, you know, that there'll probably be a focus on, you know, the nature of, uh, of the deliberations, uh, that the uh, that the prime minister and the cabinet had and and uh, kind of uh, you know a, a push for more transparency uh, about that sort of thing um, and you know there might be there might be other things as well certainly some of the conservative politicians have have claimed that the uh, the government didn't do as much as they could have done in terms of uh talking to the to the truckers negotiating with the truckers that's something that's sometimes done with uh with protesters uh so those are some of the things i think that might get touched upon we're gonna have to leave it there uh, professor hindle but it's been a real pleasure having you on the show and you know if you're interested because of what you study and and because you're, you're located in british columbia there's always uh, things going on out there it would be a pleasure to have you back on the show to talk about uh, other events and other things that are going on at a future date well thank you very much for the invitation that is professor Tyndall. he's a professor of sociology at the university of british columbia and we're using his uh, recent article in the conversation anti-vax protest or insurrection making sense of the freedom convoy protest as a launch pad to have our discussion with him today here on the show and that is our show for today i'm your host david moses thanks for listening to moment of truth we will see you again tomorrow this has been moment of truth with david moses Element.
Element. Element. Element FM. 